1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Look-back malware has been used in spear phishing campaigns against U.S. utilities, phishing bellingcat, Facebook takes down two campaigns of coordinated inauthenticity that had been active in the Middle East and North Africa. The growing problem of online card skimming, the FTC's investigation of Facebook centers on acquisitions, the Fed's visit Amazon, and followers of a YouTube streamer treat the homeless as punchlines in a big practical joke. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, August 2nd, 2019. A new strain of malware has appeared in a phishing campaign directed at U.S. utilities. Between July 19th and 25th, Proofpoint identified spear phishing emails that hit at least three U.S. companies in the utilities sector. The fish bait lay in the apparent origin of the emails. They arrived from what Proofpoint thinks is probably an attacker-controlled domain ncs.com, the domain appears designed to be mistaken for one owned by the U.S. National Council of Examiners for Engineering and Surveying. The fishhook was an attached Microsoft Word document weaponized with malicious macros to install a malware package. Proofpoint calls Lookback. Lookback is a remote access trojan accompanied by a command and control proxy mechanism. The researchers believe there's enough evidence pointing to a nation state as the actor behind Lookback but the trail quickly grows cold. The overlaps with earlier campaigns strongly suggest a state-sponsored campaign, but it's insufficient to suggest which state might be responsible. The closest analogs to the look-back campaign were earlier attacks against Japanese targets, in which China's APT-10 was suspected, but again, there's not enough evidence for proof point to offer attribution. Bellingcat, the investigative journalists who for some time acted as a gadfly to the Russian government, was itself recently the subject of some phishing attacks. Risk IQ has taken a look at that recent phishing campaign, and they conclude that it was indeed closely focused on a small number of investigative journalists who've proven annoying gadflies to the Russian government. The campaign made adroit use of proton mail infrastructure— which lent it more plausibility than its phishing attempts might otherwise have enjoyed. The journalists being fished seem for the most part to have spit the hook, but the incident serves as an instructive cautionary tale. Researchers at ThreatConnect analyzed one of the phishing emails and linked 11 domains to the threat actor behind the campaign. All of these domains spoof ProtonMail, and some of them haven't been hosted yet. The researchers say the unused domains are potentially being held for use in further campaigns. Both ProtonMail and ThreatConnect note that Bellingcat has been targeted by Russian APTs in the past, and that the domain registrars and resellers used in this campaign have previously been utilized by FancyBear. Russia isn't the only government Bellingcat scrutinizes – The investigative site's reports yesterday led Facebook to take down pages, groups, and accounts in both Facebook and Instagram for coordinated inauthenticity organized by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Facebook says it took down a total of 217 Facebook accounts, 144 Facebook pages, five Facebook groups, and 31 Instagram accounts. The focus of the information operation was on the Middle East and North Africa. The operators posed as locals and also ran some pages that represented themselves as local news organizations. Facebook also took down accounts originating in Egypt and the United Arab Emirates. This second campaign was, in Facebook's judgment, distinct and unrelated to the Saudi effort, but it too represented coordinated inauthenticity. Like the Saudi campaign, this one also had a regional focus. The operators used compromised and bogus accounts to pose as local news organizations. Facebook determined that the activity was connected to two marketing firms with similar names, New Waves in Egypt and New Wave in the Emirates. In both cases, the pushing of a government line was fairly obvious, although the effort run from Egypt and the Emirates seems to have shown more sophistication and plausibility than the one operated by Riyadh. Online card skimming seems to be a growing problem, Two major industry groups, the PCI Security Standards Council and the Retail and Hospitality ISAC, have warned of the rapidly developing threat of online paycard skimming. Magecart is the best-known umbrella term for the criminal campaigns that employ this tactic, which has been on the rise since its appearance in 2015. The most common infection vector for the JavaScript sniffers that do the stealing are third-party applications that are widely used by merchants. These typically include advertising scripts, live chat functions, and customer rating features. Troy Leach, the PCI Council's CTO, advises attention to security detail and a commitment to using best practices. He said, quote, Following PCI SSC standards and guidance, such as regular review of software and closely monitoring changes in the environment, can help defend against these attacks. End quote. By any measure, online card skimming is a big issue. Security firm Malwarebytes says it blocked some 65,000 attempts in July alone, which suggests the magnitude of the problem. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission's recently opened antitrust investigation of Facebook is, for now, concentrating on the social network's acquisitions. The Wall Street Journal says that investigators are interested in seeing whether Facebook's acquisition of potentially disruptive smaller rivals formed part of a deliberate strategy to neutralize competitors. An FTC look at Facebook is probably overdetermined by the company's run of controversial news. But a recently revealed inspection of Amazon's Virginia facility by the Federal Reserve probably signals a deeper trend toward closer regulation or at least scrutiny of tech companies offering essential services to the financial sector. The visit took place in April, but it now seems prescient given this week's breach disclosure from Capital One. And finally, a repellent bit of YouTube trolling is sending the homeless to a non-existent shelter on Reseda Boulevard in the Los Angeles neighborhood of Tarzana. The deeply unfunny gag is apparently the work of fans of a YouTuber known as Ice Poseidon, real name Paul DeNino, 24 years of age. Members of the Purple Army, as Mr. DeNino's followers are known, are urging homeless people looking for shelter to find it at Ice Poseidon's expensive rental, described in press reports as a mansion. There was no shelter there except for Mr. Danino, who's believed to have paid as much as $25,000 in rent a month before vacating the property this spring. He could probably afford it. A profile of the YouTuber in The New Yorker puts his monthly income at around $60,000. Ice Poseidon sort of got the joke, but now says it's no longer funny. The Los Angeles Daily News quotes him as saying, You've got some sad, pathetic people on the internet that literally just don't care about people. At some point, I realized it's not a joke anymore. Maybe the first time it was. Now it's not funny. It's dumb. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Professor Awais Rashid. He's a professor of cybersecurity at University of Bristol uh, Weiss, it's great to have you back. Um, you sent over a, a somewhat provocative uh, topic that you wanted to discuss today, and it's can you smell security issues in software? That has my attention. What are we getting at here?
2: So. Uh, code smells are a well-known phenomenon in in software, but more from a software maintenance perspective. So this was a term that was coined by Martin Fowler, and uh, one example of that is the you know the shotgun surgery code smell. So uh, for instance, if you want to make some changes, and if you have to make a, a, a single change and you have to make a lot of little changes in a lot of different places, then effectively you're doing a kind of shotgun surgery, which means that the, your code is not very well modularized so to speak and recently uh, ourselves and other researchers as well uh, particularly at North Carolina State University have been looking at as to is there an equivalent of the code smell but more like a like a security smell and there are there are interesting findings that you can you can actually see by looking looking at the code uh, in itself that there are symptoms of where there might be for example Uh, poor security practices. So uh, I mentioned there is work that has gone on at North Carolina State University, and they have looked at particularly um, code scripts that are used to uh, deploy various pieces of software. And there are particular smells that you you see there in the sense of that there are uh, admin privileges by default or uh, hard-coded secrets, um, uh, empty passwords, and things like that. And the reverse side of that is that we have ourselves been looking at whether the challenges that developers face, do they indicate that there are some kind of usability smells into how hard it is for them to use uh, security and cryptographic APIs. And again, uh, what we've found is that there are uh, particular types of usability smells that indicate that it's not easy for developers to use the kind of security functionalities that the various APIs provide
1: now when we're using this notion of smell obviously you know, metaphorically here is it is there a certain amount
2: of intuition that that's implied i think it's it's more than intuition in the in in the sense that a smell does not necessarily mean that it is an actual vulnerability but it indicates that there might be a weakness here there could be good reasons why people may have done something that particular manner and that may also not necessarily mean that it leads to vulnerability But it actually tells you that something might be wrong here, and that requires some attention and looking into, and you might want to consider whether the security configurations in the code at that point are right.
1: So an indicator that leads you to further investigation.
2: Absolutely. And it also helps developers, for example, reflect as as they're uh, looking at their code or reviewing their own code or other people's code. But also it helps, uh, for example, uh, those people who develop APIs or libraries to consider as to whether they are making them more or less usable for, for other developers who will be using them.
1: Hmm. All right. Well, Professor Awais Rashid, thanks for joining us. visit vanta.com/cyber to take a self-serve tour that's vanta.com/cyber open source software governance and devops automation firm sonatype recently published the 5th edition of their state of the software supply chain report it highlights best practices and what they label exemplary open source software projects and development teams Matt Howard is Chief Marketing Officer at Sonatype.
0: Well, first of all, the supply of open source continues to explode exponentially. Um, you're talking about um, a vast number of open source libraries that are available, and this massive supply is being met with continued uh, exponential growth in demand from development organizations around the world um you know one and two person development shops all the way up to you know fortune 50 kind of development shops the the world of software as we know it is largely being driven by uh supply of open source and and the developers uh demand for open source uh reflects that so in addition to sort of supply and demand dynamics um we're basically seeing a world where post-equifax and more recently you know uh some fairly high-profile breaches along the lines of uh, of event Stream. we're seeing that organizations, commercial organizations in particular, are becoming, I think, more aware of the need to uh, govern the quality of the open-source libraries that they're utilizing to build their uh, mission-critical software.
1: You mentioned earlier the word exemplary, and that's a word that comes up a lot throughout this report. Uh, Can you describe to us, I mean, what are some of the things that you see from dev teams and projects that that you label exemplary?
0: Yeah, I mean, just to put this into context, uh, uh, just so we're clear about what we looked at, I mean, we are at Sonatype, we're the curators of the Maven Central Repository, which is the world's largest public repository for Java components, so... As a result, we have the uh, ability to sort of do some pretty deep and rigorous research that no one else in the world would have. We discovered, um, you know, some interesting uh, and important things that I think are, are about to set a new perspective uh, in 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 software development. Specifically, meantime to repair a, a vulnerability is something that we uh, all understand. So if you're um in the world of software and you get a new zero day announcement from somebody like apache the question is uh if you've got an application in the wild in production um, are you aware of whether or not that particular library uh, is in your application do you have a dependency if so uh, is that dependency in the call flow is it potentially going to you know is it exploitable in the wild um, and if it is, how quickly could you, you know, find it and remediate it, um, is, is really kind of a question that I think all organizations post-equifax are kind of grappling with. Um, that's, that's on the commercial consumption side of the equation. If you look at, uh, you know, the open source project side of it, um, all of these open source projects themselves, uh, have dependencies. So these are, in many respects, there's these transitive dependencies. So, uh, an open source project um, has dependencies within dependencies within dependencies. It's kind of a Russian doll metaphor. Hmm. And the question is, when there's a new vulnerability disclosed, do the open source projects themselves uh, remediate those vulnerabilities? And if so, how quickly do they do it? So, so that's a question of hygiene with respect to uh, vulnerability or dependency management. Um, so that's the idea that uh, what's the mean time to remediate a vulnerability? MTTR is one characteristic that we were particularly interested in studying. Um, what we found is is um, you know pretty surprising that the mean time to remediate a vulnerability in across thirty six thousand open source projects that we studied is three hundred and twenty six days. The median time is one hundred and eighty days. So essentially, what that says is. You know, on average, um, across 36,000 open source projects, when a new vulnerability is disclosed, uh, that project will fix the vulnerability in its uh, library within 326 days. Uh, Is that good or bad? Um, I think as an industry, we're just now getting to a point where we understand what hygiene looks like for open source components and projects. And over time, we'll probably get to a better position to to judge uh, whether it's good or bad. And ultimately, perhaps, you know, we'll see organizations change uh, consumption patterns and popularity will rise and fall based on the quality or the hygiene that's being practiced by a particular project. Um, the other thing I want to touch on is the idea of mean time to update. Um, dependency management in software development has been talked about for a long time. And there's an old saying that the best engineering teams... Uh, or really good engineering teams reserve time in their uh, in their in their project schedule to do dependency management. But the best engineering teams um, actually automate that process. And so if, a re- if you're really good you're going to be constantly updating your dependencies to either the c- most current version of the library or perhaps the next most current version of the library. And this idea of updating your dependencies constantly is a really important and interesting hygiene characteristic that's exhibited by both open source project teams, as well as by commercial teams, commercial development teams. And, and in this particular case, what we found is that the teams, the, the open source projects that practice good uh, MTTU, that's mean time to update, meaning they themselves are constantly updating their own dependencies, almost by default. They practice really good security hygiene with respect to remediation. The point is, if they're always fresh in terms of their dependencies, they're going to be secure as well. And so stepping back from the research, we, we realized that the, perhaps the more important characteristic when looking at hygiene across open source projects is mean time to update or the pace at which you do dependency management uh, versus uh, meantime to remediate.
1: So, what are the key take-homes here in terms of advice for folks who want to be heading in that direction of, of joining those groups of exemplaries, what are the good places for them to start?
0: The take-home here is that modern software development teams um, are, are really manufacturing software applications in a very similar process to the way that Toyota manufactures cars. Um, if you think about it, you know, decades and decades ago, Toyota, um, invented supply chain automation for how to build cars with physical parts. Um, and the world of software as we now know it is, is realizing that it's important to automate your software supply chain uh, so that you can manufacture applications using digital parts called open source libraries. A long time ago, Edwards Deming um, was instrumental in helping companies like Toyota automate their supply chains. And he essentially you know, taught four principles. You want to source your parts from the absolute best suppliers in the world. You want to source only the best parts from those suppliers. You want to track and trace the location of all of those parts as they move through the software supply chain or the manufacturing process. And ultimately, you want to have a bill of materials after the application or using the analogy, the vehicle is put into production. You want to have a bill of materials so that you can conduct an orderly and effective recall in the event that you're notified of a, of a faulty part. So the analogy is how quickly could an organization respond to the uh, Apache disclosure with respect to the struts vulnerability? Um, you know, Some organizations responded very well if they had a, a grasp of their software supply chain. Other organizations struggled quite frankly to respond Looking at the analogy, think about Toyota and how quickly and efficiently they were able to conduct an orderly and effective recall when they had the Dakota airbag uh, defect uh, a few years ago. So, in that view of the world, we're basically seeing very clearly that not all those open source parts are created equal. There is a real difference between high quality and lower quality. And we also know that whether you're manufacturing physical goods or digital goods, it's always a really good idea to source the best parts and the best suppliers, uh, much like Deming taught Toyota decades ago.
1: That's Matt Howard from Sonatype. We've been discussing their State of the Software Supply Chain Report. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com.